Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Yavamot, daf mem, page 40. Well, we have two mishas on this daf, but before we get to the actual daf, I just wanted to point out that there's a great nice nistar today, because today is the first day of Pesach, and there's a whole discussion about the mitzvah to eat the leftovers of the flour or the korban minchas uh, that were brought in the Beit HaMikdash. And there's discussion uh, really right at the end before uh, before the Mishnah uh, that talks about that one of the things you could not do with a korban mincha, right, which was actually not allowed to be chametz, which is a very interesting thing, and you should think about that in terms of Pesach, that there really wasn't any chametz uh, in the Beit HaMikdash, you know, when you brought these uh, minchas, they had to basically remain um, unleavened. Um, and if you boiled it, uh, it also would make this mincha offering or the meal offering, it also would make it uh, invalid. Um, but then they get to a question, okay, what about uh, with uh, matzah? What about, you know, if you boil the flour, right? Um, is it still considered to be, you know, basically... Uh, unleavened. And so what they say is, So on Pesach, you can eat boiled matzah. Even though he initially boiled it, right? If he bakes it later on, it's still considered to be and you still can fulfill your obligation with it on Pesach. So I just had to read that passage because uh, this is, you know, the uh, daf for the first day of Pesach and it was just a great nisnistar as my father would always call these things uh, when you learn something that was really relevant to what was happening. Um, and But an important differentiator that for the unleavened meal offering in the Beit HaMikdash, you could not boil that, but for Pesach, you can boil it because you're going to bake it later, and it's that process of baking later that makes it into the Lechem Oni. Okay, well, now that we did our Nason I'm going to go to the next Mishnah, and this is a really interesting Mishnah that I think gets to some of the core about what exactly is being accomplished by the Mitzvah of Yibam. HaChaletz Yivamato. So somebody who performs Chalitza basically with his Yivama, HaRehu Ke'echad Minachin L'Nachala. He becomes like any other brother with respect to inheritance. In other words, all of the brothers are going to get an equal portion. Um, he did chalitza. It's not like he's doing anything in the name of the brother. But if the father, let's say, was still alive of all these brothers, nechasim shalav, the property of the uh, of of the of the deceased brother actually goes back to the father. Hakones et yivamato. Let's say the one of the brothers who is alive actually enters into a yibum uh, relationship and marries his uh, his yivama zachab nisachin shel aviv. He actually then gets the property of the deceased brother. Rabbi Yehuda Omer ben kach uben kach im yesham ab nisachim shel ab. Rabbi Yehuda though has a different halacha and he says um, as long as the father is alive the property of the deceased brother actually reverts automatically back to uh, to the father. But if the deceased, if the father is not alive, then the deceased brother's property will go to the, uh, will go to the Yavam. So the Gemara then is going to discuss this Mishnah and it begins off with a discussion about 
um, you know, that maybe this is obvious that he's like a regular brother, brother, right? So what it says here is, um, Pshita, uh, right? So again, this emphasizes the point, right? Where it says, would you think that Chalitza takes the place of Yibum, right? Um, and that just because you did Chalitza, you should get the, the, the alive brother should get the deceased brother's property, right? So what it, what it comes to tell us is, is that you might have thought that Chalitza is basically equal to Yibum. And therefore, no matter what, as long as you did one of the things, Chalitza or Yibum, you get all the property. And it really comes to teach us otherwise. And I think this is, again, building the case that Chalitza is not in place of Yibum. Really, once you do Yibum, Chalitza is sort of the default. And we see this through, uh, you know, what happens with the inheritance. If you do Chalitza, right, uh, then uh, you basically, you're not that the brother who is alive in Zil Chalitza is not going to get uh, the property. Then the Gemara goes on to say, if so, right, if the whole point of this mission was to teach that by doing Chalitza, you don't get, um, you know, any of the extra property, then isn't he like one of the other brothers, right? In other words, that should sort of, uh, you know, the Mishnah, right? It says the Mishnah taught he is like one of the brothers, but maybe it should have ta- taught he is still only like one of the brothers. In other words, when it says he's like the brothers, there seems to be an emphasis on something that he's gaining. Where if you say he's Ela, he's only like, then that's what he, that's what it should have said, because the point is that he's actually missing out on getting the inheritance. Rather, the reason the Mishnah teaches it with this opening clause is because you might have thought that since by doing Chalitza with his Yavama, right, he caused her, right, to basically uh, forfeit her possibility of, of doing any type of Yibam. She can't do Yibam with another brother. Once she did Chalitza, it's done. So therefore, maybe he should actually be penalized and actually shouldn't get any of the brother's property because what basically would happen with the deceased brother's property once Chalitza was done is it sort of just gets divided up or if the father was alive, it would just get divided up amongst the brother. And so he actually teaches no to the contrary. He doesn't get penalized by not getting any of it because he did Chalitza, but if he does Chalitza, he doesn't automatically get it right away. Instead, it's going to be divided equally amongst all, uh, amongst all the brothers. I just want to read one other piece here, which is later on it gets into this, you know, is the halacha like Rabbi Huda that if the father is alive, it automatically goes back to the father. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, they bring Ula says halacha is like Rabbi Huda, and also Rabbi Yitzcha, uh Napcha also says that it is, uh, that it is like uh, Rabbi Yehuda. Um, and they learn this out from a Midrash halacha that Rabbi Yehuda has from a Pasuk in Devarim, chapter 25, uh, uh, verse 6. Um, but they say the following, they're trying to make a comparison between the firstborn, who we know automatically gets a double portion. That's how inheritance law works, according to Jewish law, that the firstborn son would get a double portion. And so the question is, technically, in a way, Yavam also would get a double portion, right? Because he would have his portion from the father and the portion of the deceased brothers. E, so right, so the Gemara says, if there's really this comparison between the Yavam who went into a Yiba marriage and the firstborn, so just as the Bechor gets 
a double portion. Maybe we should say that once the father dies, according to Rabbi Yehuda, right, who said that the deceased brother's property reverts back to the father if the father is alive. But maybe after that father dies, the Avam actually should get a double portion. He should get his portion and the deceased brother's uh, portion, right? Midei Yakum al Aviv. So the Gemara says, it says in the Torah, right, Yakum al Aviv. He shall succeed in the name of his father. Ketiv, does, is that what it says? Yakum al Shem Achiv Ketiv. Rather, it says he shall establish it or succeed in the name of his brother, which basically means, right, Velo al Shem Aviv. He gets property in the name of his brother, but not in his father. So the Torah doesn't really give him anything special in terms of the father's estate. So he doesn't actually get a double, uh, he wouldn't actually get a double uh, uh, a portion, right? And so then the Gemara asks a great question, am I, right? So what they're going to say is, am I? Hecha deleka ab delishkol nachala, titkayem mitzvat ibum. Hecha deeka ab shakil nachala, lo titkayem mitzvat ibum. So in other words, this is the question. Rabbi Yehuda holds the halacha is that the avam basically would inherit, inherit the dead brother's property, right? Which is what's described in the Pesukim about, about Yibam. But that only applies when the father is no longer alive, right? If the father's alive, actually the deceased brother's property goes back to the father. But according to Rabbi Yehuda, one of the brothers who is alive actually should still do, uh, it should still do Yibam. And so the question is maybe, right? These other halachot shouldn't apply when the father's no longer alive, meaning when there is no father who is still alive, then maybe, right, that's when the Abam takes his inheritance. And that's only when the mitzvah of Yibam should apply. But when the father is alive and the Abam is not going to get actually the inheritance, maybe we would say the mitzvah of Yibam doesn't apply because the whole idea is that it's Shem Achiv. He enters into this relationship to continue the brother's uh the deceased brother's name, right? And so the Gemara says, right? Is the Torah really just saying that Yibum is dependent only on inheritance? No, that can't be true, right? Rather, in all these cases, the Yavam, right, should enter into this Yibum marriage. If there's no inheritance, right? Uh, sorry, and if uh, if there is inheritance, Shakil, he takes it. And if there isn't, then he doesn't take it. So this is the first time that we're seeing there's still something about Yibum that does not have to do with actual inheritance, right? We've talked about it before. The part of what would happen is, is the alive brother gets the deceased brother's property. But the Gemara here, which wants to argue that we actually do Paskin like Rabbi Huda, brings up a different point, which is it's not really about the inheritance. Now, it doesn't tell us what it is about, right? It's, it's kind of interesting. It doesn't really explain to us what it is about. But what it is trying to make a point about is it's not nachala. It's not inheritance dependent. There is still an outside obligation about Yibum that has nothing to do with whether or not the brother is going to get the deceased brother's property sort of as a way of keeping that brother's uh, name alive. And so I thought this was an interesting passage uh, because, first of all, this mission is filling out a lot more about Yibum, right? The first point is, is that Chalitza is not a replacement for Yibum because if you do Chalitza, you don't get that uh, inheritance at all. Uh, you're not going to get it at all, at least immediately, right? Um, you will, you know, and then the second piece is, is, you know, what if there is no inheritance, right? What if, according to Rabbi Yehuda, 
the deceased brother's property is going back to an alive father, there's still an obligation of Yibam. But again, it doesn't tell us what it hopes to accomplish. But what we do see is that it's not, Yibam is not tied to Nakhala. I think it's interesting. And I guess it's a given that I should have thought about beforehand or long ago, you know, the the degree to which inheritance is part of the Yibum story. And I understand that really it's kind of the major part of the Yibum story, but so much of the way we think about Yibum and so much of the way the Masachet begins and spends so much time on the forbidden relationships and so on, then it seems much more about progeny, right? Like the, the default is there should be children so to carry on the dead brother's name. And the fact that that also has implications and, and many of them for inheritance I think is, you know, like an object lesson. Like, oh yeah, of course, there's also this factor. Um, I'm going to continue now to the next Mishnah. I want to note that the next Mishnah is on Amad, on Amad Aleph, and then Amad Bet is very long, playing out all of the permutations of the Mishnah. Here we're talking about Chalitza. HaCholetz Livamto, who Asur Bikrovotah. So what happens is, we have a case of somebody who does Chalitza with the Yavama, Right, and now what happens is that he's. Um, it's as though he had been married to her and then divorced her. Right, meaning the status of the choletet, one who has had chalitza done, it has real implications that line up with the status of a grusha. So, for example, vehi asura bekrovav. I'm sorry, I neglected to read that together beforehand. He is prohibited to her close relationship, her close relatives, and she cannot. Uh, marry his close relatives, meaning the the phenomenon of having been married and now being divorced, um, the those relationships that are forbidden kick in, even though had they never had the yibum situation, right? If she was simply, um, well, she was married to his dead brother, right? So there were other situations that would prohibit them in any case, but. Now they have additional prohibitions because of the status of of chalitza of chuletzet, who asur biima right. So he is forbidden to her mother, uva aim ima, or to her mother's mother, uva aim avia, and to her father's mother. <coughs> excuse me, uba vita, uba vita, and to her daughter and her granddaughter, or the daughter of her daughter, uba bana, and the daughter, her granddaughter by her son, uba and also to her sister, as long as she herself is alive. Meaning, if the woman herself would die, then the sister becomes um, permitted to the to the person who did chalitza, to the dead brothers, to the sister's dead brother-in-law's brother. Um, but the other brothers, meaning the people who did not do chalitza but were also brothers to the dead brother, can, are are completely allowed to marry any of these relationships that have just been listed as forbidden. So she is then prohibited, meaning this woman who has done chalitza, she cannot marry um, the Yavam's father, his father's father, his his son, um, his son's son, his brother, and the son of his brother, the nephew. Um, okay, this is really basically the list of the forbidden relationships. In case you weren't sure, like that's what the, the Mishnah says, the forbidden relationships, and then it lists them off in case you weren't sure what they were. I don't, I don't know exactly why the need to list them, except for 
I suppose it specifies that it makes it clearer. And also, if anybody's left off, I actually did not check that. And lastly, the Mishnah continues that a man is permitted, mutar adam bekrovat tzarat chalutato, he is permitted to the relations, to the relatives of the co-wife of the chalutza, the woman with whom he's done chalitza, but but those same relatives to whom he's forbidden, he can't marry their co-wives either. Um, so it's a little bit of a tongue twister, like to realize, I don't mean tongue twister, it's a puzzle to realize like, okay, who's who are the co-wives that he can mar- marry? Namely, he can marry the co-wives, relatives, his chalutza's his co-wives' relatives, but not his co-wives' relatives' No, but not his chalutas, relatives, co-wives. Um, I think that that's simply a matter of like who is considered to be a relative by, by virtue of the forbidden relatives or a relative by virtue of the co-wifeness, right? It seems to be less of a problem, the latter, whereas once the, once the, you know, the, the mother, let's say, is forbidden, then the mother's co-wives are also forbidden because that connection that, that is in place between the chalutza and her forbidden relatives is going to extend to the co-wives of those same forbidden relatives, whereas her own co-wife, meaning her own Sarah, who then has relatives, are not prohibited because it's just more distant of a dynamic. Um, And I think that the the interesting implication here, I guess, is that because chalitza ends up being the default or even often the preferred approach to Yibum, and it's certainly the way it's dealt with nowadays, right? the, the implications of chalitza um, carrying with it other prohibitions are something to make people like realize, like, yes, it might be preferred to Yibum, but it doesn't mean that there's no other ramifications. There are ramifications in terms of who can marry whom afterwards, right? Like the, the whole of it, the whole picture is um, of a family dynamic that is shifted, I think, once we end up with um, the very phenomenon of the brother has died, there's no children, now it's Yibum or Chalitza, both of which carry implications for other dynamics going forward in terms of who is forbidden and who is not. It's, of course, more relevant in the case of Chalitza because Chalitza means that the Yavam and the Yavama are not together and you would think, okay, but so they'll marry other people and whom they can marry is now dramatically, well, potentially dramatically affected depending on on you know how many relatives they have and who people are interested in and so on, but the but that's you know once that's an implication that's relevant for chalitza more so than yibum because yibum then they end up together and the implications of you know marrying each other's relatives are obviously not going to happen. Uh, okay, that's the mission. As I said, the gemara goes on to to probe each one of these dynamics uh, or most of them anyway, and um, you know it's a kind of thing that. We've talked about it at the beginning of the Masachet, and you can see it play out. I feel like all of that beginning of the Masachet with all of its um, charts and everything make, makes this and the vocabulary for this and the idea of checking into each and every relationship or the dynamic, um, makes, we have the vo- vocabulary now to do that. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.